Hop up for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3 UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Hi, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest did sit in the cockpit for a number of years before moving across to the control tower, aka that all-important newsroom. He's been an integral part of some of the country's biggest and most influential radio stations. He is, of course, the great Dennis O'Kane. Dennis O'Kane, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Pleasure, Paul. Now, Dennis, a product of some beads mentone in Melbourne, a border in fact. How was life at school for you? When you had the chance, where was that radio dial set? Well, at boarding school, I actually, I don't think I listened to the radio. I was there from a very young age, mainly because my, well, the main reason my mother died and I was only very young and I went to boarding school. And I cannot remember radio being a part of my life there uh, at all. But it was a happy, happy time at St. Bede's, really enjoyed it. And I really didn't understand or get into radio, I suppose, until I uh, got older, maybe around about 16. Now, the legendary Lee Murray was the man who tuned your vocal cords in preparation for your first big gig in radio. How did you find Lee's methods of voice training? And can you remember anyone else of note who shared the classes with you? Oh, there's a, a lot of people there. I mean, Mel, Mel Waldron was there. Actually, he was just before me, but Brian Smith. I mean, I can go right through a whole lot of uh, names, John Brown, all these guys who got into radio. Uh, as far as the well-known ones, like those guys are well-known in their own industry, but as far as television is concerned, I can't, nothing really stands out that was someone there who, like, for instance, a Bert Newton or something, someone like that, but... He was the guy to go to, and I always remember when you look back at those times, he kind of, he, he was great. I mean, you know, he, he got me into the industry along with a guy by the name of Clark Sinclair, but I always remember the teaching methods was almost yelling. You had to forward to the tip of your tongue, and the microphone was about a metre away, and you had to really project. That was his thing, project. But I always found that if you projected and did it, that way, and I discovered this later on when I got into the business, you sounded very unnatural and you sounded like you're 
out of the 1940s or 1950s as a radio announcer, you know. Um, but he was the man to go to, and I'd never knock him. He he got me a job, and with Clark Sinclair, I got my first job at 2VM Maury. But, of course, once you get into the business, you soon learn the rights and the wrongs and what's best suited for you and, of course, the radio station that you work with. As you mentioned, first gig at 2VM in Maury, an appointment that actually came about under fairly tragic circumstances. It did. It did. Um, I got a phone call from the manager at the time, Rex Morrisby, and said, can you get up here quickly? We have uh, vacancies. And he told me the reasons why. And there were some announcers coming back from Sydney. And there was a, a petrol tanker, I think, across the Newell Highway, parked across there early in the morning. And unfortunately, they collided with that tanker and they lost their lives. And uh, and there were some vacancies, a tragic way to get a job, but I got it. So a young city boy miles away from home in the middle of New South Wales. What did you learn professionally and personally from that first experience? I learned so much in the short time I was at uh, at 2VM. We had Nick Irby there, a guy by the name of Barry Goodman, who was their sales director or sales manager. And I think that radio station, 1965, it's mid-65, and we're just moving into music from the serials and so forth because television had just been introduced into that part of New South Wales through uh, Tamworth. And um, the station gradually started to change. And we had a playlist. We had strict rules. And it was a great discipline to work there. That My very first radio station was a very good one. I've got a lot of time for 2VM. I really do. Now, Dennis, having a taste of broadcasting at Moree, were you convinced more than ever that this was going to be the career for you? Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And I was 18 and this was the one I wanted to do. And that consolidated my love for the for the business. Yeah. You spent some time in the Apple Isle and then up to 3SH in Swan Hill, still playing the role of Dennis O'Kane, the music jock. Now, were you a jock who had a great love of and knowledge of music, or did you get a bigger buzz just out of being the communicator and entertainer? No, I really was. The music didn't mean much to me. Like, for instance, we had uh, at the time Barry Bissell. Now, there's the name. Barry Bissell was at 3SH at the time, and uh, he was a real music, into music, loved the music, into it. I was never that at all. To me, it was being a broadcaster, being an announcer, doing the things that you do on a radio station when you're doing a program. As far as the music was concerned, that was the product, and that's the way I looked at it. You know, I I was never a, a music freak. Not that Barry was a freak, but he, I was never into the music like he was. The first Capital City gig was 5AD in Adelaide, where I believe the first O'Kane broadcasting epiphany occurred. That is that shift to the newsroom. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, I got to 5AD and you really uh, understand it is competitive when you get to Capital City Radio. The difference between Capital City Radio and regional radio, not that I'm putting down regional radio, but the difference is very big. And I discovered very soon that it was not for me. So 5AD, uh, the manager at the time was Jim Sutton. Trevor Cowling was the program director. 
Lynn James, the news director. No doubt three of them got together and thought, look, this guy isn't any good as a jock. <laughs> we don't want to sack him. So they said to me, would you like to go into the newsroom? And I thought, oh, no. I loved it. I got into the newsroom and I learned it and I stayed in news ever since. And that's where I'm still today. And I'm 75 and luckily still in the business at 3AW. But that's where I started. Yeah, 3AW has been great. But let's go back to 5AD for a moment. Um, it was owned by the advertiser. And part of the thing you do, you a cadetship uh, at the advertiser. And I learned a lot from the journos at the advertiser. And I really started to love it. I mean, it was uh, it was a great move, and I'm very very happy about it. And I'm I'm glad I've got out of I got out of uh, being an announcer and uh, and playing music. So was it like going back to radio school in a sense, or had you picked up enough along the way to get you through? I think I picked up an, uh, enough along the way. I, a lot of it was presentation and news reading. Um, I had to learn a lot about writing and so forth. Um, but you, you pick that up and, and then the whole thing, I've always felt uh, since I got into the business, even like it in the country stations, that it's a one-to-one -one business. And I go back to Lee Murray and shout to the microphone a metre away. I thought, no, that's not for me. Uh, in fact, I, I used to do that a bit at 3SH One Hill because, well, a lot of young announcers used to ape announcers in the capital city and I'd started to ape a guy by the name of Stan Rofe, and I was soon told by the program director to cut it out and be yourself. Bob Taylor actually told me that. Bob said, um, listen, stop throwing the voice down the back of the throat and sounding or trying to sound like Stan Rofe because there's only one Stan Rofe. And that was Stan, and we all know about him. But I did sort of, it was the communication side of it, and I always felt even writing news that it had to be one-on-one. -on -one. It had to be personal. You're broadcasting to one person. That's You always had that in your mind in journalism that you'd write it as if you're writing to one person. I've got a lovesick beat running through my feet, oh baby. And when I sing this song, it really turns me on, oh baby. Baby, baby, well. I keep listening to your live station. At the time, 5KA were also looking to make their mark in Adelaide, and Paul Thompson was the man who brought you across to be part of the revitalisation of that station. He did. Uh, he uh, came down from the Gold Coast, and 5KA uh, changed, as you mentioned, and I got this phone call, and I was really happy to go across. Um, and I learned a lot of skills there simply because at the time, we what we did at 5KA is... We put a tag on it. I don't believe it's got a tag. It's just me being personal, but we called it conversational news and we wrote in a very conversational way, uh, not full of jargon or anything like that. And a guy by the name of John Williams is the news director and he led that. Uh, Paul Vaughan Harvey, a guy by the name of Vaughan Harvey was there as well. Uh, and we learned to 
very quickly to communicate news in the way that we felt that 5KA listeners would want to hear. In other words, the news services were targeted to 5KA's format, and it worked very well. Can you remember some of the jocks who pulled Lewitt across to the station at the time as well? Uh, well, there was a, John Vincent was uh, came across from 5AD. Uh, he was just fantastic. I loved him on air, John. And they're just so natural. John Vincent's so natural. Dave uh, uh, Whitcomb was there. Uh, John Dean was there. Oh, there's a, a whole lot of guys. We had a really good lineup and we called it Constant Music. And Paul Thompson was quite brilliant, really, because uh, it was owned by the Methodist Church from memory. The bottom line was that we couldn't play ads on a Sunday. And we certainly weren't allowed to advertise alcohol on the radio station, being its religious connection. But we weren't allowed to advertise on a Sunday. So what Paul would do, just as that is as an example, he turned what could be said as a negative into a positive, just push that music through. And so we had the format called Constant Music on a Sunday, and that sort of flowed through right throughout the week. Basically, the radio station became known as just playing the hits and, uh, and then it, it sort of went into other things like the life station. It was certainly ahead of its time. But right throughout those, right throughout those changes in um, not formats, but sort of the way the radio station would pitch itself, the news basically stayed the same. And you'd look at a story and you'd think, would that, is that really, would our listeners be interested in that? You know, bear in, bear in mind it was a young person's station. If not, you'd throw it in the bin. You wouldn't use it. What's the point of using something like that? So we'd tailor that news to, to the format. And we did a lot of research even back then. Uh, and we found out that the hates people really just didn't like, for instance, politics, the ins and outs of politics. They just wanted to hear if you're going to do a political story, that if it would affect them directly, not indirectly, but directly, like for instance, in the hip pocket. So we did all that and made sure all the journos understood what the format was. And we went ahead and... Now from 5KA in the city of churches to the number one station in the nation's biggest capital city, 2SM, what was your initial comparison between the two stations and the two marketplaces? Well, we went from, uh, I went from a newsroom of about six people to a newsroom of 17. So it gives you an idea how different it was. And uh, we had people like Brian White, Steve Liebman, John Tingle. Uh, you know, I'll give you an idea. These guys are on air and... Uh, Steve Blander and myself, Steve's still around, he's, at, uh, he's with Smooth. Uh, he and I were the outside reporters. And the news at 2SM was really different. Now, 2SM a, was a, you know, a, a music station, but we did mute news that was live. I mean, you'd, Brian White would cross to you, cross to Steve Blander or cross to me out the road uh, or the other reporters, and uh, we would talk to Brian about the news. So instead of just doing a straight voice report that goes 30 seconds or 40 seconds, we would actually talk the news in a Q&A fashion, just like they do now, particularly in television. But we did it then. I mean, we're talking about 19, talking about 1978, uh, we we're doing that. And then uh, what we did before we'd go to a story, we'd pre-feed, which was a straight voice, that that would go to the network and then we'd sit in the car. We didn't have mobile phones or anything. We'd sit in the car via a Motorola two-way 
and uh, do the Q&A with either Steve Liebman or Brian White. And you learn a lot. You learn to think on your feet and you learn quickly how to react because you are live. Now, 2SM was all about more music, Rocktober, concerts, larger than life jocks, and a demographic that was aiming mainly at the sub-25 year old market. So where did news fit into the pecking order of importance at the station? I always think about that. I mean, you couldn't do it now, but then, you know, um, it was only AM. Uh, 2WS hadn't come on air in Sydney. 2SM, I don't know, it was unique. It was started basically by Rod Muir, the digger made to do this. And I suppose if you did it today, it'd be interesting to see whether it worked. I don't think it would because it was so broad. Because here we had a, a young person's radio station with Brian White and Steve Liebman on. <laughs> and, you know, it, it kind of, when you look back, it doesn't make sense. And we had seven minutes of news. That's what ended up being that way on the half hour and breakfast because you'd have uh, Steve doing the news, comment from Brian White. Uh, they'd shot, uh, crossed us, um, Shane Stebbins for the surf report. And then um, we did the, Wilkie. Now, what's the guy's name who did the weather? Ah, oh, oh, I've had a mental block. And he'd do the weather live from home. Um, you know, th- that was the sort of radio station. And then we'd get back into playing music. And even between the music, we did a lot of talking. So it was a very unusual radio station. And even though we talked, we made sure, of course, what you talked about was relevant to the audience. And that was very clever. John Brennan was there producing uh, Gibson and Moore, Mike Gibson and George Moore in the morning. Um, it, it worked. And then... Gordon O'Byrne at midday would come in and that we went to requests and music then and then it was basically uh, a music station after that. But before midday, we did a lot of talking, but we made sure that talking worked and it was it was targeted, which is very strange for me to say that because as an under 25 station, even though I've never believed that, I always believed that 2SM was older than that and I, I would prefer to think of it as a perhaps under 45 station, but very broad. It meant a lot of things to a lot of people. As you mentioned, you guys were on the road a fair bit. What were some of the more memorable stories that you covered while in Sydney? Yeah, Hilton bombing in Sydney. Steve Blatter and I covered that. Um, that was an enormous story. And just to refresh people's memories, that's when the uh, bomb went off outside the Hilton during a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Um, Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister. Uh, and there was a, a rubbish truck out the front, and uh, there was a rubbish bin, and the bin went in, and then the uh, it was compacted, and it blew up, and it was tragic. It was fatal. That was a big story. And then there was a lot of hoax calls, unfortunately, right throughout the day, throughout the city, and we didn't understand the technology in those days of bomb detectors that have these uh, robots. They first put them out, and, and they detonate any uh, anything in a rubbish bin. And we used to see those in Sydney for the first time. I remember doing, Brian White would um, he'd cross live and I, I was in Clarence Street actually in front of the old 2SM building where 2SM was before it went to North Sydney. And I called up and I said, Brian, this robot, weird looking robot with a, with a looked like a turret in front is about to blast a rubbish bin. And he said, well, all right, we'll stay with you, go live. And so we're, we're going live, you know, we're going to live. And then you could hear the bang. <laughs> You know, that, that's what live radio was all about. And um, all that between the music. Melbourne, the rock capital of Australia. 
Now, the next appointment was as news director at another station at the top of its game, 3XY in Melbourne. What was the brief given to the newsroom and what innovations, if any, did you introduce? Well, basically it was to, um, to do what 2SM was doing. We wanted to change 3XY. 3XY was very successful, but a new station came on the market in 76, and that was 3MP. And it was a challenge to 3XY, and it had to change direction. And it changed direction and it worked because the station did stay number one. The brief was do what we do at 2SM, do at 3XY in Melbourne. A lot of people thought in Melbourne that was, uh, you know, big brothers coming to haunt us or tell us what to do. But that's what we had to do. And uh, I told them, I said, that's what this is what the format will be. Uh, we, John Torv, who sadly passed away uh, recently, uh, he was instrumental. Graham Smith was the program director. Changes were made. Darren Hinch made his uh, debut, if you like, uh, and doing a radio program at 3XY. And uh, we changed the station. The music was changed because from during the 70s, XY was a hard rock station and then promoted itself as that. It's like ACDC, DC, that sort of, um, you know, and, and it worked. It worked very well. But things were, you know, Changes were made, which had to be made at the time. You mentioned there Darren Hinch. Were you part of the decision makers at XY who took the punt on Darren as part of an all-music format? And do you think it really worked? No, it didn't. Not at 3XY. Darren left in November. Uh, it didn't work there. Um, quite a few reasons. I mean, Darren went to 3W where, of course, he belongs, and he went on to be number one. Um, yeah, no, it, it didn't work. So 3XY realised that very quickly by November. And we then had, uh, in that morning program, Barry Bissell and Hans Torv, of course, Hans being John's or Jan's uh, brother. So we, we, we changed things around. Uh, but the music sort of continued on. And we had, of course, that famous denim and vinyl logo, like 2SM mm. and, uh, and 4OP in, in, in Brisbane. And uh, the station continued to, to be number one uh, most of the time from memory, and uh, we did very well. And then we were in the old age building in Spencer Street in Melbourne, and then we moved to brand-new studios, and um, the Rolls-Royce of studios they were. They were just absolutely fantastic. Graham Smith left, and a guy by the name of Greg Smith came along, who's well-known in the radio industry, and he, he was programming the station. Um, there were there a lot of really good people there. and uh, But the, getting back to that question in the original brief, we wanted to change the news too. We wanted to make the, the news more of a, a 2SM approach, like getting out on the road. And uh, I'll give you an idea of the largest of what li life was like in radio then, particularly with 2SM, was um, I got three news cars overnight, uh, all marked, 3XY on them. And I said, right, here are, in, here are the news cars. And I'm quite sure now if I went to management and said, can I have three news cars or I'm not the news director now, I just have fun in radio. Um, I, I'm quite sure they say, uh, no, no way. I mean, they 2SM had, if you like, uh, the Kerry Packer attitude to things. Um, we'll spend the money, but it's got to work. Now, Dennis, there was a very interesting blend of influences overseeing the station at the time with the Liberal Party, the Catholic Church and the Age newspaper all with their fingers in the pie. Did that ever affect in any way the presentation or content being delivered by the newsroom? Yeah, it did. Um, and we blocked it. We really did. Graham Smith played a major role as a PD. 
John Torv and myself because uh, uh, Larry Oakes was doing uh, the Canberra commentator who was writing for the Herald Sun at the time, or the Sun, the Melbourne Sun at the time, and uh, he was working at Channel 10 and he was also doing pieces for 2SM and we wanted him at 3XY and the Liberal Party ownership said no way because they saw him as a, a Labor Party uh, pro-Labor and they said no. And a guy by the name of uh, Magnus Cormack uh, said you can't have him and we said, well, we want him and uh, we are programming the radio station and you've got to have a trust in us. And after many talks, a lot of talks, and the, and also the report of or the support of David Syme, the publishers of The Age, um, The Age, wonderful. They helped us and convinced Magnus that it's, uh, that it's not going to be the end of the world and, and Laurie should come on. <laughs> yeah, we had a few battles, but, you know, we, we, we tackled them sensibly because they were, you know, you've got to respect they were part owners of the, of the licence. Sharing it all with a friend Personality Radio A-W We're a part of your life Personality Radio If it matters, if it's news right now The next move was down to Latrobe Street to commence a relationship that I would suggest on and off has spanned over 40 years plus, of course at 3AW. So what were the main differences moving from being a news director at a music format station to a news director at a station that basically relied on news for its content? Well, actually I found it quite easy because um, I was hired by Brian White and Brian was at 2SM as I mentioned before and he came down to Melbourne to manage 3AW. And he rang me, he said, would you like to come across? And I said, yes. And I kind of, it, it does, it's a radio station. If it plays music, it plays music. If it talks, it talks. And to me, it was a radio station. And if you're believing in the, believe in the format and believe in what the radio station's doing, that's all that matters. And it really didn't come into consideration, oh, I'm not muse, sort of involved with a music station. That didn't particularly worry. In fact, it didn't worry me at all. And I went across to 3AW and we did a lot of changes there, made a lot of changes. Darren was there and and we took that radio station as a team, the whole radio station. We got it to number one after it was down in the doldrums for many years, got it to number one in 1983. And it was a great period, great period of time. We had a good luck, great lineup. John Blackman, Uncle Roy, and that was Bruce Mansfield. Darren, Muriel Cooper doing afternoons. Mark Day, drive. And then we went into the evenings. Good lineup. We had the football. We had the news. And uh, it was just a, a marvellous time. And the turning point for the radio station was the Ash Wednesday bushfires, which our coverage and all of a sudden we became uh, the unofficial uh, bushfire radio station where we took in donations and, and everything. Went, and people just turned to us for the coverage of the, of the bushfires, which was amazing considering the fact it was an era when we, well, before we had mobile phones and, and so forth, and the, the radio station was like like it is now, really part of Melbourne, and it was a, a proud station to be involved in. As we mentioned, you were news director for some time, but also program director as well. What were the differences between the two roles? Oh, well, I just combined the two, and then we put a news director in. Uh, Brian White, really, at the bottom line, was he was the program director, but I did, did the work that a PD does, 
what Brian said went because uh, that's one of the things I loved about Brian. He understood programming and he, or like Paul Thompson, I mentioned Paul before, these programmers put programs before the, the, the sales side of it because they knew that if you've got a product and it works, it'll bring the sales, it'll bring the revenue. And it, it's common sense. You can't put a cart before a horse. It's got to be the other way around. And, and, and these people... And I don't know, I hope they're still around, um, who think this way, that it's so, so important to spend the money, get your programming right, know what you're doing, and the revenue, as long as you've got a good sales team, will follow. Now, Dennis, of course, you did enjoy time on the FM band and in the mid to late 80s, joining Kevin Hillier and the Fox Morning Crew. So how did you enjoy jumping back into that format? Did a bit of the old music jock come out while spending time with Kevin, Dee Dee, Wally, Grubby and the like? No, not really. Once again, it was going from one format to another. Graham Smith was manager there. I worked with Graham at 3XY. He invited me to come across. Uh, The reason I went was that Brian White left 3AW and there was a change of ownership because Fairfax had folded. I don't know if you remember that, that time, but uh, Fairfax carved up the radio stations. 2GB went into hard times. Likewise, 3AW was an awful time, and I thought, I'm getting out of here, really. Uh, I felt like jumping off the Titanic, but it, it was not a great time. So I enjoyed Fox. We're in little, at the end of the Channel 10 building at Nunawading, and this little radio station, it went to number one, and I'll never forget it. It, it played the hits straight up and down. It had uh, fun on air. It was all about fun. Kevin Hillier led a great breakfast team, Diane Dunleavy. And of course, I work with DD now at 3AW. She was there, and it was just a wonderful time. I loved it at Fox, and I was there for three years, and then I returned to 3AW. Okay, Dennis, a couple of questions that require clarification. Firstly, how would you describe the QE2? <laughs> You don't miss much, do you? Uh, a floating hotel on wheels. Can I tell you the story about that? Go on. Okay. I mentioned before about a pre-fee we do for the network at the 2SM, at the 2SM network. So I tend to the hour, you file, here I am. But anyway, I did the voice up and I made a mistake. And I, for some reason, I got carried away. I was on the deck of the ship and on the Motorola, I said, it's like a, like a floating hotel on wheels. And I said, oh, hang on, I'll do it again. Five, four, three, two, one, did the proper one, and off it went to the network. I was supposed to do a live cross with Brian White at midday, and Lloyd Jones was the news editor, called me up and said, uh, don't worry about uh, the live cross, Dennis, at midday with Brian. He's right. He doesn't need it. And I thought, that's a bit strange. What are we going to do? The QE2 in Sydney, first time ever, big story. I soon found out why. He played my The Floating Hotel on Wheels, went to air on 2SM. <laughs> <laughs> He's a naughty boy, Brian. <laughs> but, but worse, I, I organised for the ship to have our report fed through the PA, through all the speakers on the ship, because I got said to the captain, oh, we've got a big uh, midday wrap on this. Oh, you know, must so he arranged for 2SM to be uh, piped through <laughs> the ship. Oh. <laughs> I you... jumped overboard. <laughs> one of the two SM golden bloopers, I'm sure, there, Dennis. Hey, listen, you did work at one stage at Gold FM where Sean Cosgrove was famous for his gotcha calls. 
But Sean also made a habit of getting people in person at the station. Did he ever get you, Dennis? <laughs> Uh, anyone who knows Sean Cosgrove and that face of his, uh, he's a lovely guy, but his face is scary. And he, uh, I don't think he was, he did give me, a, I th- I'm not too sure if I can say this, but he was trying to give me a wedgie in the newsroom. And that face is staring at me. I don't know why he did it. He probably saw me as an e- easy target. And uh, very embarrassing because the other journos, particularly one in Alicia Byrne, who worked with me, always remembers that and has a great laugh about it. But here I'm being wedged by the Sean by Sean Cosgrove. And let me tell you, it's not a nice experience. But a lovely guy. Absolutely. And one of our previous guests here on Pilot. Hey, listen, speaking of big, where are the biggest egos? At an all-music station or news talk station? Because you've no doubt dealt with some of the monster egos at both of them. Yeah, talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe, yeah, yeah talk. talk. Talk stations uh, where you'd have the biggest egos, uh, I reckon. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I don't think the egos, particularly my experience with them, uh, has never been a major issue because of the radio stations I've worked at. But um, because, you know, even back at 3AW days at at La Trobe Street, um, they all had a job to do. They knew what they wanted. If things went wrong, you know, it, it it's at times could not be, you know, wouldn't be pleasant or whatever. You made sure you got things fixed up and uh, and things were working because everyone on air at that radio station uh, wanted to do their best and the best for the radio station and, of course, themselves. Um, but egos, uh, yeah, talk, definitely talk. Finally, Dennis, was there ever a time after you made the switch to the newsroom where you thought, gee, wouldn't mind a music shift just as a bit of a change? No, I've never really thought about that to be quite honest i don't think i'd be very good at it i you got to have a flow and i maybe that was the reason why 580 dropped me from uh, being a, a night announcer a night uh, disc jockey um, because maybe the, the flow wasn't there i don't know no i never want to go back to that no it's very pretty down some killer road in the parks and gardens, all the trees are shaking out their heavy load. It's a beautiful time of year. Aren't you glad you're here with 1422 3XY? Autumn, a beautiful time of year. 1422 3XY. Dennis, we have a dozen or so questions we ask all our guests. And the first one we generally ask is, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was there in New York. <laughs> And uh, 3XY was at 3XY at the time. I got a phone call. I was out for dinner and uh, 3XY rang me. It might have been Nigel Haynes, who's our production uh, guy, said, uh, John Lennon's just been shot. Can you uh, feed stuff through? Because what 3XY were doing, they were building a, a special uh, and uh, they built a half, you know, Nigel and the team built a half hour, then put it to air. Then while that was going to air, they were building the next half hour. Uh, quite amazing. And they said, what can you do? You're there. So I um, I covered it. I uh, did a deal with the local radio. Well, it wasn't a deal. I just rang up a ra- local radio station. I said, can I come in and uh, and report out of your newsroom and get any of your audios and that and give you a credit? And they said, yes. So uh, I covered it that way. And it was quite amazing, actually. We did it, um, you know, 12 hours nonstop, basically feeding um, audio. In those days, we used to use things called alligator clips. 
you'd un unplug the phone and put the clips on your recorder. I had a recorder there and uh, you'd send through all this audio. So we're doing that. And I was basically feeding into that, that special that we were doing. So I was in New York. In fact, I stayed at the same hotel as the guy who shot John Lennon at the Sheridan. I was there in the same hotel. Mm. It's scary. Mm. So that's where I was. Well, can I say, I've asked that question 37 times before, and that is the most extraordinary answer of all. Just amazing. Hey, listen, the last time you paid for a concert ticket? Uh, well, when I worked at music stations, we got freebies. We did. I mean, that's, um, you know, the, some of the great concerts I didn't have to pay for. Uh, lucky me. Uh, Rolling Stones in Sydney. I was at 2SM at the time. Um, all the good, great concerts in Melbourne, 3XY, because these stations sponsored the concerts, so you got free tickets. So uh, I can't remember the last time I played, played for a ticket. Is there a concert act you regret never seeing? No, not really. No, no. Um, I mean, I'd like to see uh, Paul McCartney when he was in Melbourne. I, I thought, gee, I'd like to go and see him. But I'm lucky where I live. I live near Amy Park. And that's where Paul McCartney was uh, and, and other concerts were held. And uh, I used to hear them. So I'd be on the balcony listening to them. But no, there's, there's not an act I, I, I regret not seeing. Dennis, that one word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. Anomaly. I can say it now, though. God, it's weird. Uh, Mel Waldron, the famous uh, radio and television news presenter, reporter. Um, I think that's the word he couldn't say. Anomaly. Anomaly. You know, there's a few of them, actually. And the trouble is when you come across them, you're worried about them and then you stumble over them. Um, actually, I don't know if it is anomaly. There's, oh, that's a very similar word. But there are words. There are words that a lot of us have trouble saying. And what you, what you try and do is change them in the copy. So if someone's written a story with a word that you're scared of, um, you change it. Now, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Yeah. Um, I was very young and it was Christmas Eve and I got very drunk and I went to 308 Swan Hill next morning. I was doing breakfast and I was told that night or convinced to change the music because it's Christmas morning. So I changed the music format and played Christmas music more than I should have. And I thought to myself, Bob Taylor's going to sack me for, for this. I don't know why I did it. In hindsight, I was stupid. And, but we've all done stupid things in country radio. And that was my stupid act of changing the music format of the radio station and playing all these favourite songs that people the night before were saying, play this, play that. <laughs> and I did. Skyhooks or Sherbet? Sherbet. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Oh. Uh, Rolling Stones, but I love the Ah, uh, yeah, Rolling Stones, yeah. Dennis, your most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? I don't have any. Isn't that terrible? Not one. Um, I suppose because I like to live for the present uh, and that really matters to me. But I, no, I don't. I don't have old air checks. Sometimes I think I wish I did. I would have loved to have an air check at the first shift I did at 2VM Maury. I remember the first song I played was Help and my hand was shaking so much. Because in those days you'd had 45s and you'd put them on the turntable and you'd hold the 45 and let it go. And you had, my hand was shaking so much, the needle jumped, nearly jumped off the record, but that was the first song I played. I would have loved to have had a, 
an air check, but then I probably would have died of horror <laughs> listening to it. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Uh, well, I mentioned, um, well, I wasn't on air, but John Lennon, the Hilton bombing, uh, the bushfires, yeah, in Victoria and Ash Wednesday, and then more recently the, the fires we had in Victoria. But, yeah, Ash Wednesday, John Lennon and the Hilton bombing. Now, Dennis, was there ever a moment when someone walked into your studio or the radio complex and you were suddenly starstruck? No. Uh, Neil Mitchell probably would like to think that when he walks in, I like that, but no. The best words of advice from a program manager? From Paul Thompson and Graham Smith, basically telling you, be natural, be yourself, and uh, and remember that you're not talking. Never say things like, you out there, or the general public. So there are words I hate. I hate the word public. Um, you know, it's one-on-one. That's what radio is. That's what radio is. I mean, television's not. Uh, generally, television, you're there and you're talking to a group of people or whatever. But, I mean, radio is... Most people, I've been told, and I think I know, when they listen to you, they're by themselves. And finally, two albums that you might consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. I was never really into music. I guess at the time I was always into hits. Like um, I remember at the time when I was really interested in getting into radio, when I went to Lee Murray, I was about 16, 17, and I thought I'd well, three, listen to 3UZ, um, 3AK, in those days, just play the hits. I was never into one of those Barry Bissell types who would sit down and really get into the music. I One day I went to a music um, meeting uh, and the jocks are all around talking about the music and I'm thinking they're dissecting it like if they were surgeons. It was really quite funny why they why they can or should not play a song. And I thought, no, nah, not into that. Uh, I was just like, I like, I like what we used to call radio songs. If a radio song jumps out of the radio and makes you feel good. I thought, yeah, I like that one. You know, there's many of those. Well, Dennis, it's been a diverse and no doubt very fulfilling career in radio. Thanks for spending some time with us today and sharing some of the great stories and memories of that excellent career. Gee, I tell you what, you do some good research. No, hey, Dennis, that's all just part of the fun of it. Hey, listen, continued success with your work there at 3AW. Thanks again today. Okay, it's a pleasure. Dennis O'Kane on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.